jasoncharles.net. Audio dramas. The following true story from author, performer, and activist Abby Stokes took place in New York City in the early 1990s. This is Tim, part one. I first met Tim, actually I was sitting in Don't Tell Mama with a very dear friend of mine named John, who has a dark, dark, wavy hair. And at the bar at Don't Tell Mama was this incredibly attractive blonde with very light, wavy hair, who had his winter scarf tied in a way that I've never seen an American tie it. So I made a joke about the Scandinavian at the bar and said, look at that handsome Scandinavian at the bar. He's certainly not American. And if you don't know, don't tell mama. It's a gay bar. So it was pretty likely that he was gay, but we didn't know for sure. John was, is. And so John, who was shy, said, why don't you go over and meet him? So I was procuring for John. I actually uh, went over to Tim, even though I didn't smoke cigarettes, and asked if I could borrow a cigarette. And that was how we met. And he opened his mouth, and I was expecting him to have some sort of like heavy Swedish accent or something. And instead, he was adorable and had no accent, and immediately sat down with us. And I would say we all sat there chatting until like the wee, wee hours of the morning. And that was how Tim and John actually ended up starting to date. And they were together for several years before they both went to Los Angeles on business and then ultimately broke up. Tim was in New York for a couple of years and then moved to LA, then came right back. And that was when I re-met Tim, was when he came back. We'd stayed in touch. I mean, we were all buds, traveled you know, en masse as friends do in your 20s. And after he moved to LA, I went to LA and visited him. He didn't like LA. He moved to LA, he was an actor and a singer, primarily a fabulous singer, and was in New York thinking he was gonna study opera and then moved to LA to think that maybe he'd do television. And he immediately got an extra spot on Doogie Howser. At the time, Tim had this beautiful white blonde, but really curly, lovely, loose hair. And Neil Patrick Harris loved Tim's hair. And so he stopped him on the set and was like, how do you do your hair? And Tim called me, he's like, did you know that Doogie Howser's gay? <laughs> I said, how do you know? And he said, because he asked me about my hair. <laughs> so Tim was in, L.A. hoping to make his place in Hollywood, which he didn't. He wasn't that kind. He was much more of a New York actor, singer and stuff. So he came back to New York and ended up living with me in my teeny-weeny apartment on McDougal Street, which was all of 600 square feet with one bedroom where we shared a bed. And he was the maitre d' at the Odeon. So he'd come in very late from work. I love the Odeon. I had been going there for a long time before I met Tim and before he got that job. Once a week, you could go to the Odeon and have dinner there if you were staff so that you could experience what the food was like and all of that stuff. And so Tim sort of bled that into me. So I could get dressed up and sit in the back table at the Odeon any night I wanted to and get free dinner. So I'd get all dressed up and I'd bring Jane Austen and I'd sit by myself at a table for two. At that time, especially in the 80s, like the Odeon was the hottest spot. It was one of the few restaurants other than Florent that stayed open 24 hours a day. And so it was really fun. It was a very, very hot place for him to be working. So he was sort of in the top of interesting New York City at the time. And he was beautiful. He was stunningly attractive with the high cheekbones and the piercing blue eyes and the curly blonde hair. And he was lovely. He was a lovely guy. So he was my roommate on McDougal Street until the apartment that we're sitting in right now came my way which happened through a friend of his. 
Tim was, when we were living in this apartment, he was 26, and I was just about to turn 30. This apartment is three times, four times, five times, I don't know how many times, the size of that apartment, and was just about the same price. So we moved in here together into a two-bedroom as roommates. And this apartment was rent-controlled before I got it. And the gentleman who lived here paid very little rent and had renovated the apartment and then died of AIDS very soon after. And so that's how the apartment came available, which then, of course, ended up feeling like it was a little doomed. It was sort of the, you know, it was the time in New York. When we first moved in, I'm way into Ouija boards, and a friend had given us a Ouija board, and we did this whole little Ouija thing about the apartment, and Tim was really superstitious and said, you know, don't do it, don't do it. And the Ouija board, I don't remember exactly the outcome of it, but I remember we got spooked about the ghost in this apartment. We moved in in February. We renovated. It was a one-bedroom at the time. So I asked the landlord if it was okay if we paid for the renovation, if we converted it into a two-bedroom. So at that time, Tim and I were sleeping in the dining room on an air mattress while the renovation was happening in here. The air mattress had a hole, so every night we'd blow it up, and every morning we'd be flat on the, on the stone floor. It was so funny. But anyway, there was a lot of dust in the apartment and a weird confluence of things. There was a lot of dust in the apartment, and we were on an Indian food eating jag. So every day at either lunch or dinner, Tim and I would go and have Indian food. So about two weeks into that February, Tim said to me that his stomach was really off. And I'm like, well, of course it's off. All we're eating is, you know, <laughs> vindaloo every day. You know? And he went to a doctor and the doctor thought it was his postnasal drip was activating this stomach stuff. But it was all the way back in February that obviously his, you know, something was going on that we hadn't figured out what it was until in March we went to another doctor who said that maybe he has an ulcer. Maybe that's why he was having such stomach pain. So he started all these medications for an ulcer. And I went on vacation for a week. I came back to find a half drunk glass of red wine on the table, no sign of Tim, and my cats hadn't been fed. And I was like, that's weird. So I got on the phone and I called up one of Tim's closest friends, Jamie, and said, Tim's not here. Now I knew I hadn't been feeling well. He really hadn't been feeling well by the time I left. And she said, he's at the hospital. He got really sick. We brought him to Cabrini because he was dehydrated, was what they said. Because I guess after I left, Nobody was around and he wasn't feeling well. And you know that thing you do when you just sort of like laze around the house because you don't feel like taking care of yourself. And so I think like three days had gone by where he really hadn't had anything to eat or drink because he wasn't feeling well. So Jamie came to see him, hence the half glass of wine. And uh, he was so, looked so bad, she brought him to the hospital. So he went through the emergency room into the hospital and they had said that he was dehydrated. So I rushed to the hospital, I see him, he seems, better because they juiced him up with all the stuff they were supposed to give you to make you feel better when he got out of the hospital the next day we went to a doctor gastroenterologist that had been recommended by a friend lovely doctor way up on the east side and in the course of the examination the doctor you know was sort of checking off his list of questions and said to tim have you ever been tested for aids and Tim said no. And the doctor said, well, you know, we're just going to throw that in with the other test because should it come back positive, 
it will influence what we do with your treatments. And Tim and I came home, and Tim said, what happens if the test comes back positive? And I said, well, I think we should talk about it now because it would make more sense for us to kind of like have the pieces together. And Tim said, if it comes back positive, that he wants to travel. We went to the gastroenterologist. He did the series of tests and did the AIDS test. And Tim's discomfort in his abdomen continued to the point that we ended up bringing him back to the hospital. I think it might have been a week and a half after that first day. So it was very short timeline. Gastroenterologists hadn't gotten the results of the tests yet, actually. And we were back in the hospital with pain. And that was when they finally did an MRI of his abdomen. And the physician came in and said to us, you have a very large tumor pressing up against your intestines. You have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I immediately went into research overdrive and called up a bunch of people that I knew who knew prestigious doctors in, in the U.S. and said, if you were 26 and diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, where do we go? What do we do? And the first question that came up from this young doctor said to me, is there a chance that he's gay? And I said, no, there's no, yes, he's, there's no chance that he's gay. He is gay. And he said, well, has he been tested for AIDS? And I said, why would you ask that? And he said, because the treatment, not about the AIDS causing the cancer, but that the treatment for it would be very different if you had a compromised immune system. So we called the doctor's office to get the results of the test. And at that time, and I doubt this has changed, they won't give you AIDS test results over the phone. So we made an appointment to go in to see the doctor, which was probably the next day. And I remember Tim and I, I'm sure we were back on that old lawn furniture sofa saying, okay, now this is happening. What are we going to do if it comes back positive? And Tim and I decided that the code was going to be that we'd go into the doctor's office. Tim said, I want to go in by myself. And when I come out, if I say we're traveling to Europe, then you know that the test came back positive. And so that's exactly what happened. He came out of the office. He took my hand. We walked into Central Park. And he said, so I guess we're going to travel in Europe. And I was like, OK. And that's what we're going to do. So let's figure this out. So we came home <laughs> in our very practical way. We got a map of the world. And we got some thumbtacks. And we put it up in his bedroom. And we put thumbtacks on the map of all the places that he wanted to go. And we attached a yarn through all of the places. That was our first, I think this was sort of our weird cathartic way of kind of like facing what was happening. And then we sat down and sort of figured out, how are we going to tell people? The inconvenient timing, I can tell you exactly when that happened, because the next day was my birthday, and a surprise birthday party was being thrown in the apartment for me, which Tim had to expose to me because we were not really in the frame of mind to have a party the next day. The whole theme was about giving. So everybody was dressing up in togas, and you couldn't put oh food God. in your own mouth. Everybody had to feed each other, because it was all about giving. That was the theme of my 30th birthday party. So Tim and I decided that we wouldn't tell anybody about the diagnosis till after the party. Tim looks bad at this stage. He's quite thin, you know, because he'd been sick for since February, really. Like, he hadn't been retaining food in any proper way. We would try, but that was sort of what was happening because of this tumor in his intestines. And so 
people arrived in their togas, and there's a photograph. I had these long beaded earrings on. I'm sort of in motion, blowing out the candles of my birthday cake. And everybody notices that the earrings sort of became horns because they moved forward, they sort of swung forward in the picture. But what I notice in the picture is that my hands are clasped together and the tension in my hands is so dramatic to me because I was just hanging on for dear life that night because we didn't really get a chance to process this information. And here was this gorgeous party and there was, at the time, was a death sentence hanging over his head with this idea that he had AIDS. And another element of that party was somebody had hired kind of a fortune teller. And they obviously wanted me to have my fortune told. And it was precisely the last thing I wanted to have done, given what I knew was ahead of me. But ultimately, I got forced into it. And I went into the room with this woman. And she said, so by this time, to go back a little bit, John and Tim had broken up. They had both ended up in LA for a while overlapping, but their relationship didn't sustain it. So when Tim came back to New York, John was still in LA. And so these are my best friends who'd broken up. And Tim was living with me, which had caused conflict with John because it was all sort of uncomfortable. But anyway, in the course of this fortune teller, she said, there are two men in your life. One is very dark and one is very light, quite obviously. John with the dark wavy hair and Tim with the light wavy hair. And she said, they've been in conflict. That conflict will end soon, but you will be very sad at the end of this summer. And ultimately I was very sad at the end of the summer because Tim died on July 26th. That's how fast it was. It went from his having a stomach issue in February to his finding out he had AIDS on the last day of April to his dying on July 26th. Oh, if only it had been a year later, with the drugs that they have, everything could have changed. Yeah. So to me, when Tim got sick, it was obvious that I would rather spend my time with him, not knowing it was as short as it was, than working. My grandfather had just died, and I'd inherited a, not a lot of money, but the apartment wasn't expensive. I sort of only made enough money to meet my means. Actually, I'd lent Tim some of the money, too, so that he could pay his rent. So we were sort of eating away at this small amount of money. And there was a time, again, nobody knew how short it was going to be. There was a time in, I would say, you know, sort of late June, early July, where friends tried to do, have sort of an intervention with me. The intervention was sort of, Abby, you've got to still have a life because, you know, this could go on for a long time. I don't know if some part of me knew it wasn't going to go on for a long time. So I, I invested everything I could in that. I don't think I had a notion it was going to go that fast, but I'm deeply grateful that I decided to commit all that time and not think, oh, I should balance it. I didn't balance anything. I didn't work, you know. Ultimately, what happened was we started looking at, there weren't really treatments for AIDS to speak of at the time. It wasn't like he was suddenly going to go on to a bunch of cocktails. Sort of the order of events that had happened with this evolution with his medication so he gets diagnosed with AIDS. It does change how we think about having his medical treatment. We decided to go with radiation in tandem with a little bit of chemotherapy, but it was really mostly the radiation. They were hoping to shrink the tumor and then see if maybe it was going to be operable when it shrank. So we would go into the hospital for radiation treatments and then come home. And he would have steroids, which was my first time 
with anybody on steroids, and I have to say it was so impressive because the radiation would leave him so weak and feeling terrible. And I think they'd let like three days go by and then they'd give him the steroids and then he was Superman. When he was diagnosed, I decided that the one thing that might help him is to get a piano in the apartment. So I called my mother and said, not like my mother had much money. When I moved to New York, she gave me $20 as my, I wish I could help you more, bon voyage gift. Um, but I called my mom, who was always very tuned into if her children need something, she would hear it. And I said, I need to buy a piano. Tim is sick. And she said, okay. She said, how much will it cost? And I said, I'll pay you back. I priced them. I think it's going to cost about $2,000. And so I bought a piano. We brought a piano into the apartment because I thought Tim in recovery as opposed to Tim in death, because he was a singer, that would be sort of how we'd spend his time while he was in the apartment. So he'd have the steroids and he'd sit at the piano and he would play and he would sing and people would come over and it would be great. And then another radiation treatment and he would dip down. We only did the radiation for probably a couple of weeks. It was the night of the Tonys and we had a Tony party here to watch them. And Tim was so sick, feeling so badly, that he stayed in bed in his bedroom while people out here drank and, and watched the Tonys. And everybody left, and Tim was being a real trooper about it. He was in agony. And so he said to me, couldn't you come and just spoon me and hold me because it hurts so much? And then he said, Abby, I know you're not religious, but would you mind if we prayed? I said, Tim, I'll, anything that helps, like I'm happy to do that. And so we sort of laid there and, and prayed and hoped he'd feel better. And we, we wanted to wait until morning to get him to the hospital. I didn't want to take him to the emergency room in the middle of the night just because I, I thought it'd be miserable. In fact, it probably would have been less crowded. So we got into a taxi that morning. And I just remember he was in so much pain. And the cab driver, it's New York, you can't avoid the bumps and stuff. The cab driver was trying to be so careful. And he would hit a bump and Tim, the driver would apologize. Tim would, you know, audibly show his pain. And then Tim's like, it's okay. It's like they were both apologizing to each other in equal measure. It was sort of very sweet. And we got to the emergency room at Cabrini. That's where he was doing his treatments. And they discovered that, in fact, the radiation had successfully shrunk in the tumor, but unfortunately, in its shrinking, it had detached from the intestine, as in, and his intestine was open. So his entire body cavity had filled with toxins that had released from his intestines. So the doctor said he needed to rush him into surgery to close up that intestine and to try to clean him out. They successfully sealed off the intestine, and I think... They removed the tumor when they were there. So this was in June, the time that the Tonys happened. They seal off the intestine. They were using all kinds of antibiotics and stuff to clear it out every day. Several times a day, they would sort of wash out his body cavity. But he seemed to be doing better. And Tim, all ever practical, though, so he had cancer and he had AIDS, and we didn't know if either was going to kill him. But he thought that it was time to help other people process the information. So at one point during all of this, his mom came for a, a week and stayed with us. And I can't even imagine how overwhelming this was for her on top of the AIDS diagnosis and all that. Tim grew up in outside of Portland, Oregon. And his, he was adopted, his sister was adopted, and his parents 
are Church of God, which is super duper religious, speak in tongues. Many, many things are unlawful in, according to them, like wearing makeup and dancing, unless it's dancing for the church. Certainly being gay is frowned upon. So he grew up in this very strict environment. Remarkably, when he was in high school, he came out of the closet to incredibly accepting parents, even though they had this crazy strict religious background. Because his mother kind of, it clicked in her head that if God made him, then nothing can be wrong with him. So they had an interesting kind of battle that they had to do with their own community because Tim was openly gay in an environment where it would not otherwise be accepted. We always had sort of a theory that part of that was he had a heavenly voice. He was a, a truly gifted natural singer and he sang in church all the time. And I think because they saw him as the person who sang and not the person who was gay, that overrode this new piece of information that they wouldn't have otherwise tolerated. It was kind of fabulous. His mother came to visit New York, this is long before Tim was sick, and I live on 14th Street, which at the time, 25 years ago, there were lots of transvestite hookers that would hang around on this block and lots that would sit on our doorstep. And Eleanor would sit in the window of my apartment with the window open, almost falling out of the window because she was so fascinated by these transvestite hookers and like how they looked and how do they, how do they make that happen and their boobs look so realistic and their voices and like she was, it was very interesting to see her sort of develop into, she still didn't wear makeup and she still didn't really want him to go to the movies, but she accepted him for as much as she wanted to understand what his lifestyle was. So that's where he came from. So he was very blonde. He looked very Scandinavian, which I think is common, you know, in that area around Oregon. Um, his sister had very dark hair, didn't look at all like him, the ad other adopted sibling. The story was that someone in the church got some young woman pregnant and that there was a chance that it was the minister at his church was actually his father. That was the family lore. It all happened with the church. It wasn't like going off and finding an adoptive family. This was because the Syversons heard that some girl was pregnant and they were desperately couldn't have children and wanted to have a baby. So they offered to adopt the baby as soon as it was born. And so that was Tim. So he's never really known for sure. Fast forward just, you know, his sister and his mother and his father came for a week. And Tim was doing pretty well then. We took them to Fire Island uh, for a couple of days. Her, his mom stayed longer than his dad and his sister. And one night we had a very long conversation about, you know, the possible prognosis. Sort of very honest and upfront about it all. And that night we pulled the mattresses from our two beds into this living room. And the three of us slept together holding, Tim was in the middle and we were both holding his hands. And I think we woke up in the morning in the exact same position. It was very sweet. Then she left. I think hopeful that Tim would get better. And obviously the entire church was praying for him. And Eleanor's belief is if everybody in the church is praying for it, it's all gonna get better. So Tim had decided he wanted people to be able to emote. He wanted people to visit him in the hospital and not feel like they had to somehow put up a, a strong front. So that's where I came in. Long ago and far away, I had wanted to be an actress. So. Tim would say to me, oh, Richard's coming to visit today. 
I want to give him the high heels that I wore when I pretended to be Mrs. Howell at that Hawaiian party. He should have those. But when he comes in and he seems to, you know, be using his stiff upper lip, if you could cry, Abby, it's going to make it easier for him. And that was sort of the thing that we did. He would send me home to get whatever object he was going to give to, and he always had something in mind for somebody coming to visit. So I'd bring the object in, and then they would come in, they'd sit down with Tim, and they'd start off having a nice conversation. And then at some point, if I didn't feel like they were really like pushing it enough, then I would start to get upset. And in turn, that would allow them to get upset. And then everybody was able to sort of say what they had to say to each other. The interesting thing was I actually didn't cry very much with Tim because we were in like practical, make it as good as it can be. If we can fight it, great. If we can't fight it, let's plan. So our conversations were not a wash of tears. I would sit with him in the hospital all day. If there were visitors, yes, I would cry for that. But otherwise, we would make plans. You're listening to Tim on jasoncharles.net. For the second part of this story, go to Tim, part two, in audio dramas. For more information about author, performer, and activist Abby Stokes, go to abbystokes.com. JasonCharles.net Deep Deep Talk, talk, deep deep Sounds